0: welcome to the teachings of pastor mike yost of the springs calvary chapel in hayburn idaho please join us as we study the word of god this morning we're going to be in the gospel of luke in chapter 15 as you've been following along with us you can turn in your bibles there this is the chapter one of the beloved chapters the lost and the found. Jesus opens up and just shares with us what heaven is like, and what our Lord is like, and what our shepherd is like, what our Father is like in relationship to our plight of being lost. You know, it comes off the tails of chapter 14. We finished that just last week, and in chapter 14, The Pharisees invited Jesus to lunch, quote, after church, right? It was the Sabbath day. It was their Sabbath lunch. For us, it'd be like the agape feast we're going to have in a couple minutes, right? To just come and break bread with the brothers and sisters and enjoy sweet fellowship together. He was invited to that meal, but it was a setup. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they're trying to catch him in all of his kindness and goodness. And somehow... Bring an accusation against him, and and we saw Jesus kind of rebuked them, and he used the dinner that they were at as an illustration. As they would come to this meal, he accused them and brought forward their false piety, their false popularity, wanting the best seats, their false hospitality, their false security, thinking they've got it made, they're going to heaven, their false expectancy, and even their false witness. And he leaves that lunch and he goes out amongst the people. And in chapter 15, we read at verse 1 Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and he eats with them. You see the connection? Here he's been invited to a meal. I use that illustration, The Man Who Came to Dinner, a a, a movie that was made back in the 40s, but uh, how it just rips off the masks of hypocrisy and and people thinking there's something that they're not, all the airs and pretensions and all the smugness that people can have, even when they gather amongst believers, as these Pharisees, these scribes were doing, inviting Jesus to lunch. And now he's out amongst the people And what happens? The people come to him. The people flock to him. The people love him. It's interesting in all of this, lost sinners are attracted to Jesus, right? He's just like a magnet for those who are lost that he might welcome us and make us feel at home, right? These these scribes, these Pharisees, they were kings of criticism, They could point out every error in everybody save themselves. Right? And yet, Jesus, He doesn't criticize them. He cares about them. He cares for them. He cares with them. This is not to say that He caters to them or that He compromises with them. As we see when these sinners, these tax collectors, these harlots, these publicans, all of these people come to Jesus, they're changed. They're changed not because of the law, but because of love. And that's what we're here to celebrate today. All the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to hear Him. Now, it's interesting. Luke makes quite a big deal about Jesus and these tax collectors, and these sinners. In fact, back in chapter 5, you might remember when he called Matthew, Matthew Levi, to follow him, to uh, be that this, the apostle of him. In Matthew chapter 5, at verse 27, we read, after these things, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So, He left all and rose up and followed him. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. And there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. And the scribes and Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Going on in Luke chapter 19, we're going to be there several weeks out from now, but as Jesus is approaching Jerusalem and he's coming through Jericho, we get the story in verse 1 of chapter 19, Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, who's they? We can feel. Yeah, we've been following Luke along. We kind of know what this is. When they saw it, they all complained, saying, "He's gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner." Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, "Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold." And Jesus said to him. Today, salvation has come to this house because he is also a son of Abraham for, and this is key, the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. This is really the theme of Luke's gospel, that the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, would come Not just stay up there in heaven and wait. He would come to seek and save you. Me. Us. People who have been kind of pushed to the side. Sadly and often by the church. People who know they need God, and they've looked for Him. They've looked in church, and they haven't found Him. This is one of the things that Jesus rails against, and and Luke is very faithful to record it. And it's not just in Jesus' day. It's not just the Jews. We read as Jesus dictates to the Apostle John in the book of Revelation He writes about the church that is going to be present in the last days, the church of Laodicea. And in Revelation chapter 3, I'll pick up at verse 17. These are Jesus' words. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus was invited to lunch and basically thrown under the table. Tax collectors and sinners came to him, and just like the church in Laodicea, just like Levi, Matthew Levi, the tax collector, just like Zacchaeus, he says, repent. I'm standing at the door and knocking. I want to come in, and if you will open the door, I will come in and dine with you. I want to enjoy breaking bread with you, fellowship with you, intimacy with you, and it's interesting, right? He's just rebuked the Pharisees wanting the best seats in the synagogue and making excuses why they can't be bothered to show up for this feast that the Lord is preparing them And their false piety, and their false security, and their false hospitality. And here Jesus says, if you'll open up the door, I'm going to let you sit on the throne with me. You want a good seat? You're going to get a good seat. Well, this, is, this kind of sets up several parables now in this chapter. There will be three parables, the parable of the lost sheep, of the lost coin, and of the lost son. And each one of these parables is a story that is told that we can all relate to, something that we experience here on earth, but looking between the lines, pulling back the curtains, we'll see heavenly truths, things about the kingdom of God. Things about the king of heaven. Things about our eternal hope that Jesus wants us to understand. And so he uses these parables to help unpack that for us now. Verse 3, he says, So he spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. So I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. Do you get it? Do you see the picture? Now, it's important that we understand this comes right on the heels of Jesus having dinner at the Pharisees' house. And the Pharisees, smug in their own self-righteousness, self-satisfaction, self-importance in their piety, completely miss the point of this parable. Because they're upset that these tax collectors, these sinners, would eat with Jesus. Now, in Jesus' day, for any Jew to eat with a non-Jew would be to defile yourselves, to make yourself impure, unclean. And it was something that just wouldn't happen. You would never go to a Gentile's house. But the same held true for Jews who were not in fellowship or Jews who were not holding up all the laws according to the rabbis. We have the same thing going on in our community with churches or religious groups that worship their church. They worship their rules. They worship their traditions. And you'd be hard-pressed to hear the name Jesus mentioned on a Sunday morning. And this is something that Jesus is trying to bring out. Now, in this, I love in verse 6, when he comes home, he calls together his friends. This is the shepherd who went out to look for the lost sheep. He calls his friends together and says to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. And these are the three main words of chapter 15. Lost, found, and rejoicing. And see how it ends here. It says, I say likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance i love what c.s lewis says he says joy is the business of heaven this is what saints should be known for right what do you do for a living what's your business what do you occupy yourself what are your days filled with joy rejoicing thanking God for His provision, seeking out and saving that which is lost. And truly, as we look at these three parables of the sheep, the coin, and the son, there are so many levels to the joy of our salvation. Of course, the joy of being found. That's fantastic joy. But there's also the joy of finding. When you go out and find those who were lost, and bring them home, that joy a lot of times eclipses the joy of even your own salvation, right? Because it's your salvation multiplied, leveraged through all those people who God uses you to go rescue. There's rejoicing finding, there's rejoicing in returning, and there is rejoicing in forgiving just laying that down that burden that weight that thing that just hinders us from just flowing with grace and joy that bitterness that often comes from resentment trying to keep a score and we're going to see all of this joy just unpacked here first with the parable of the sheep now in this parable and again a parable is not an allegory and you're like, great, I didn't know what a parable was, and I really don't know what an allegory is, so they're not like. <laughs> Again, I told you a parable is come from the word parabole, para, alongside, to throw up, to cast alongside. So you take a story and you cast it alongside heaven so you can match them up. Parables generally, typically have one point. That's it. You're not supposed to overanalyze them. You're supposed to look at it and go, oh, wow, the sheep was found rejoicing? I get it. Finding sheep is great. I get it. That's the simple thing. Allegories, on the other hand, a famous allegory, Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. In that, every piece of the story represents something in life. And so, In this parable, you have a shepherd, you have sheep, you have a flock of 100 sheep, 99 safe and secure, one lost, and then the shepherd goes looking for the sheep, he comes back, there's rejoicing in heaven, and people will put all kinds of different importance on each piece of the puzzle. That would be an allegory. And you start thinking, hmm, I wonder what the shepherd's thinking. I wonder what the sheep are thinking. People start thinking stuff like, is that good to leave those 99 sheep all by themselves? And they start getting worried about all these details that are not in a parable. It's simple. It's just really simple, okay? And it's simple enough you and I can understand it. God himself says, all we like sheep have gone astray, right out of uh, Isaiah chapter 53, we need that good shepherd, that our Lord, right, who lay, makes us to lay down in green pastures, to walk by the still waters, to uh, walk in the paths of righteousness for His sake, to restore our soul, right? And, and this is something we understand about being sheep. Sheep can be silly. Sheep can be foolish. Sheep, a perfect animal to pick out of all these animals, can go wander off and never ever find their way back. And sadly and this is the picture that we're supposed to see when Jesus uses this parable of the sheep we would think about God and His flock which is all humanity. Now in this story 99 sheep are just safe and secure. There's other shepherds there. They've got each other. There's safety in numbers. Don't have to worry about the wolf. Everything's good with them. But the one that's wandering, there's all kinds of peril. And and being off by themselves, they can't defend themselves. They can't fend for themselves. They can't feed themselves. They can't do pretty much anything. They're mostly goners. And in this story, what is amazing is that as Jesus would help us understand what heaven is like. And keep in mind, who's listening while Jesus is talking right now? Audience response. Who's, who's listening? Are you listening? <laughs> I heard sinners. I heard tax collectors. Pharisees. Scribes. They're all listening. See, The the religious elite, the holier-than-thous, they're listening to this too, and they're hearing this parable of what heaven is like. And these 99 that are just fat and happy, safe and secure, Jesus says that's not what the shepherd worries about. The shepherd worries about the one, the one that's gone astray. And again, this is the last thing in the Pharisees' hearts. Remember, they, they, they invited this man with dropsy, with edema, with a, a, a physically debilitating condition that could lead to his death, and he was just a setup to see if Jesus would heal him. Well, what do you think? Here's a bunch of fat, happy Pharisees sitting around the table, jostling for position, who gets the best seat, and all this kind of stuff. Blessed is he who eats bread in the kingdom of God, and they're going on all about themselves, and they're just throwing this poor, lost sheep to the curb. Now they're hearing the story as Jesus says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. One lost sheep, I'm going after him. And clearly, and if we know a little bit about Scripture and the Bible and how these different things are representative, those sheep represent Israel. And there are some of these Jews, even the sinners, even the tax collectors, that have gone astray. What are you going to do when a sheep goes astray? To the Pharisees, to the religious elite, nothing. They got them in that. They got themselves in that. They can get themselves out. I'm not going to dirty myself. I'm not going to defile myself. I'm not going to lower myself. I'm not going to go looking for sinners. Are you crazy? Why would I look for sinners? I want to stay here just clean and proper and perfect and pure man I just I just I, I'm just comfortable with this and to them it would be blasphemous to think that God would bother to chase after these tax collectors, especially tax collectors publicans is the way it might say it in your King James Bible but these are quizzlings these are stooges these are people who work for the occupying, government. They're the ones that come and shake down the Jews to pay taxes to a foreign government. And this is somebody you could really care less about, whether they ever made it back into the flock. In fact, you know, let's make sure they don't get back in the flock. There are people that have those kind of attitudes, and that's what Jesus is trying to help us understand. Pray that's not us. He goes on in another uh, parable, verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, like the first parable. So here's the theme. If you're not catching the point... He's repeating the point for us. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is really the, 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 the big deal here. Now, this lady, okay, this is part of Jewish custom, Jewish tradition in those days. When a, a woman would get married, often part of her dowry would include a chain of coins. In this case, it's a drachma. It's a silver coin. It's quite valuable. And they would take these and affix them to a chain and wear them as a um, headdress. You've probably seen pictures like that, right? And this was very valuable to her and very precious to her. Not only does it establish her position now as a married woman, it's be much like us having a wedding ring, right? Oh, you're married. How do you know? You got a ring on. Well, she's got her coins on. Oh, you're married, right? And you would treat that woman differently with the dignity that should be given to a, a married woman. So here she is, but she's lost a coin, and this is just bothering her to no end. I mean, this is this is humiliating. Um, There's great value in that coin, but her status, her position is in jeopardy here. There's a piece missing from my position in society. And so what does she do? She lights a lamp and goes through the house, sweeping everything, cleaning everything, looking between the cushions, you know, like we would do if we lost a coin. And she finds it, right? She finds that coin. And when she does, woo hoo heaven breaks out in a hallelujah. The angels are just rejoicing. They're beside themselves. High five. She found the coin. Are they really that concerned about the coin? That's not the point. The point is something was lost, and now it's found. And this is something that brings great joy to God. This is something that the Pharisees completely missed. Now, a couple things that are interesting in this, as you look at the three parables, the lost son coming up next, in the case of the lost sheep and the lost coin, these are things that they had really nothing to do with getting lost, so to speak. Yes, the sheep wandered off, but they're just silly sheep. They, they can do nothing to rescue themselves. And a lost coin ain't going to find itself. It requires somebody care enough about it to go find it. Completely helpless without a Savior to come and save them. And this is part of the picture that Jesus, Messiah, is trying to share with the rabbis, the Pharisees. You know your scriptures. I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. I alluded to it a little bit earlier, but Isaiah chapter 53, in verse 6, we know this. It's a wonderful, beautiful passage. It says in verse 6, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And it's funny that these Pharisees can see all the the sins of all these people, they can criticize them all day long, but they can't see it in themselves. They can tell you all day long, you need a sinner, oh, that one needs a Savior, or you need a Savior, that one needs a Savior, right? But they would never look at themselves and say, I need a Savior. And do you notice how Jesus even makes this quip in Verse 7, I'm going to back up to the sheep. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons. Now, who need no repentance? Clearly, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All need to repent All need to be forgiven. All need a Savior to come and look at them. But there's some, as Jesus would say back in chapter 5, I'm a physician. I come to heal the sick, not the just. And if you think you're good, you think you're righteous, you think that in and of yourself, you're able to make yourself clean, You're the one, really, that needs it the most. And this is what Jesus is trying to help them see. And it's kind of snarky of Jesus, if you will. I came to save sinners, not y'all righteous. Yikes! Yikes! Jesus has been insulted, abused, disrespected. God! God Almighty! creator of heaven and earth the God of the Jews is being thrown under the table and he's had just about enough I'm done with you religious elitist snobs that's scary that's not a place you would ever want to be I love it. Coming up in several more chapters, we're going to see Jesus gather with the disciples at the Last Supper, right? And he's going to institute communion. He's going to wash the disciples' feet. He's going to go on and teach them many wonderful things about the kingdom of heaven. But at one point, he says, my betrayer is at the table with me. And 11 of the 12 say, is it I? One of them, he knows who he is, Judas Iscariot, doesn't say anything. But when you are in the presence of God, his glory, his purity, his holiness, just standing in that light, can't help but to make you feel and see and understand. I fall short. And when God says, somebody here," has sin. the instant response to a humble person is, is it I? But not the self-righteous. Hmm. Yeah, I know. Somebody in this room is a sinner. Right? If you can say that, I can tell you who it is. It's the person wearing your pants. (laughs) So, the second time rejoicing now verse 11 then he said to a certain then he said another parable a certain man had two sons and the younger of them said to his father father give me the portion of goods that falls to me so he divided them as his livelihood and not many days after the younger son gathered all together all together journeyed to a far country where he wasted his possessions with prodigal living this is also known as the prodigal son, right, the lost son. And it's interesting in this, um, it's also a picture of the loving father, you know, and you can look at that and title it how you will. Most of us look at it as a prodigal son because we tend to see ourselves first. Whenever you take a picture of a group of people and you look at the picture, who's the first person you look for? Yourself, moi, Right. And so when you look into this parable, who's the first person you see? Moi, (laughs) the prodigal. Prodigal is a fancy word. It just means waste, wasted. So it's really repeated twice in this verse. In verse 13, not many days after the younger son gathered all together, he journeyed to a far country and there wasted his possessions with wasteful living. That's just literally what it means. But it means that you're not using those things to God's glory. You're not using them for good. You're just spending them on wine and song and, you know, whatever, the high life, whatever this this kid wants to do with it. And it's kind of interesting. It's not illegal to receive your inheritance prior to your parents' demise. You don't have to wait for your dad to die to get your inheritance. In fact sometimes it's quite wise for parents to give their children their inheritance before they die especially in the climate that we live in politically with the tax system and everything you can probably get a lot more bang for your buck giving it to your kids while you're still here you get to see them enjoy it and it helps them on their way in life and there's nothing wrong with getting an inheritance before you die but in this case the problem was while it was legal what this son da, did was not loving it's not loving to waste what somebody has worked so hard to give you you need to be grateful appreciative thankful and this is really the heart of the problem with the prodigal son is that he just doesn't have a place for this gift He's prioritizing things over people. He wants the stuff. He could care less about dad. He's prioritizing pleasure over reality. And and these are some things that we need to be careful for. So he said, give me the inheritance. He divided them. And after many days, he went and journeyed to a far country. So this is not amongst his people. He just leaves Dodge to a far country. Uh, and wasted his possessions with prodigal living. So he's out of reach of rescue. And this is the case, again, this is a parable. The parable is going to be the same as the other two. You know what the parable is? You know what the point is, I mean? When something's lost, is found, there's a lot of rejoicing, okay? I'm just cut to the chase for that. But here, this is a picture often of people who run so hard and so fast and so far away from God that they virtually get out of reach. Out of reach of the family, out of reach of the friends, out of reach of the kids they went up went to school, grew up with, out of reach of everybody. They'll find themselves finally in some long-lost, desperate, dark place. Nobody knows them. Nobody cares about them. Nobody sees them. And it's virtually hopeless. This can happen to people. And it's something we need to be careful for. It's why we want to teach the Word of God to our children as they grow up, so they can take heed. Be careful. Watch out. And you start running down that path. I know it sounds like fun. It sounds like pleasure. It sounds just like all that. The world advertises it, markets it to us, tells us it's going to be so great. You, I mean, you know what the deal is. You watch television or whatever. And how do they sell you stuff? Uh, there are so many things. I, uh, we went and we watched the Super Bowl this year. Forgive me, but I loved it. But um, the commercials. How many of these commercials you sit there and you're like, what's the product? All I see is this wonderful lifestyle or these attractive models or all these things that are supposed to make me desire whatever they're selling, but they don't even put the product out there. They just sell the vibe. And it's something that we need to be very careful for. Well, this young man fell for it. Hook, line, and sinker. Verse 14, but when he had spent all their... Spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and set, and he sent him into the fields to feed the swine. He basically became an indentured slave. He sold himself. I'll work for you. Just feed me. Okay, you can work for me. You just take care of the swine, the pigs. You don't have to put too much into this parable to recognize when Jesus says there's a young Jewish boy who gets his inheritance from his benevolent Jewish father and goes to a far country and he's feeding pigs that ain't kosher. Okay? There's some problems here. Verse 16, And he would gladly have filled his stomach with pods that the swine ate And no one gave him anything. Now, these pods, most people uh, would think that they're possibly carob pods from the carob plant. And it's something, just like a lot of livestock, we give them different things to forage on. This is something that pigs could have eaten. And possibly, this young man who's feeding these pigs wished he could even have what the pigs have. Just starving to death. Verse 17, But when he came to himself, he said, How many are my father's hired servants have enough bread to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and say to him, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. Hallelujah. We read in the book of Romans, In chapter 2, at verse 4, or do you despise the riches of his goodness, his forbearance, his long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? And so here is this lost soul, so far out of reach from his family and his friends and whatever social security net that might be out there for him, and yet God, the goodness of God, and just remembering all the blessings that he had. You have life. You have abilities. You have talents. God created you specifically, uniquely, divinely to fit in a niche just for you. You are important. Of the 8 billion people on the planet, there's only one you. And God made you to fill that role which He ordained before the foundation of the world, that you should walk in it. And at this point, This starts crashing in on him. How often it is that we have to come to the end of ourselves, that we we come to the end of our rope, and I often say, you actually have to get to the end of your rope and then let go. That's when you get to God. I know that's my story. I, I was raised in a Christian home, and when I say that, I'm an American Christian, I was born a Christian, I went to church, that makes me a Christian, right? I wasn't really raised in prayer, I wasn't raised in the Word, I wasn't raised in fellowship, I wasn't raised in service. But nevertheless, I knew about God, and there came a point in my life at 28 years where I had I had hit bottom. I, had licked, I The rope, I was up there someplace... But I just at the bottom with without a lot of distractions, you can see sometimes a little bit more clear what you have and what you don't have. And the one thing I still had was that I knew God loved me. And I reached out and he took my hand and pulled me out of that pit. And this is where this guy, this kid is at. He's repenting the goodness of God leads us to repentance. Repentance is a Greek word, metanoia. Metanoia means to turn around or change your thinking. If you're thinking about the world and you're thinking about yourself and you're thinking about your plans and you're thinking about your goals, turn around and start thinking about God. Thinking about what He's done for you. Thinking about what His hopes and dreams are for you. Think about what His purpose is for you think about God, meditate God, dwell on God, change your thinking, and you'll start seeing the way out and the way up. And so he said, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Man, even the hired servants ate better than he did, right? And I am... um, Verse 20, and he arose and came to his father. He came to his father. Hallelujah. Can anybody ever say that's your testimony? (laughs) I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Verse 20, B, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. I can tell you right at this story, this point in the story, with all the Pharisees gathered and the sinners and the tax collectors gathered, and Jesus says that the father pulled up his robes and ran to him, all of the Pharisees would go, Humph. that's so undignified. No, no father would ever do that. They wouldn't stoop that low to run after a dirty, reprobate sinner. Even it's their own child. This is the problem. This is the the brokenness of the heart of the Pharisees. They would mock the Father. And yet, as I look at this, this is the parable of the loving Father. This is just how much God loves me. That while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. Christ came and went to the cross for me. That he might reach in to the pit that I was in and pull me out and bring me back to the family of God. His father ran to him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And he said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But his father Said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this is my son, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. This is so beautiful, this is so wonderful. We start with a son in rebellion in verses 11 through 16. He's rejecting his father, just rejection. And then in verses 17 through 20, we see him repenting. He's rejecting the world, right? And he's turning away from that old world. And now here in these verses 20 to 24, we're seeing reconciliation. That those wounds and those those sorrows are being filled. They're just being covered with love. It's just so beautiful. And then we get into verse 25, the reaction of the older son. Again, this isn't an allegory, so please understand there's one point to this. They were rejoicing because he who was lost is found. But it's not hard to find yourself in this parable if you're a Pharisee. Here you are. Verse 25, and his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked, "What these things meant?" And he said to him, "Your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed a fatted calf." Woo hoo! The brother's so excited. We're going to have a party. My brother's back. Not. Nah, you guys must have read ahead. <laughs> Verse twenty-five. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours, not my brother, this son of yours, right, came who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, You kill the fatted calf for him, right? He's just, he's bitter, he's resentful that his brother, who does not deserve all this grace, is just being showered upon by his father. Man, I've been here, I've been faithful, I didn't do anything wrong. I've just been your totally trustworthy son, just going along, you know, the the golden boy, the golden child. And now this derelict comes back and you have a party for him. And, and it seems so wrong. But that's because you don't know your father. You don't understand love. You got the law down right. I did everything legally required of me as your firstborn son. I've, I've met every yacht and tittle. I have just done, I've checked all of the boxes. I'm your perfect child. And the delinquent child comes back, and that parent's heart is just filled with joy, inexpressible, to have lost a child. And I can't just cruise by that because there are too many people in this room who know exactly what I'm talking about. There is no greater heartache in the world There's nothing to lose your child. But the joy that comes when that child comes back is off the charts. You're never going to find it in this world. It is out of this world. It is supernatural. It is God's love just pouring into your soul when that child comes back. Now, I know for a lot of us, the jury's out. We don't know if that child's going to come back or not. In some cases, we may have lost a child, and we don't know the outcome of their life or their soul. They've departed this earth. We can't sit in judgment and know where they are. But our heart breaks for them, and we await that day when we we'll finally understand, where are they? But this story and the picture of this story Again, there's that, that brother who just doesn't care. That is, his brother came back. And that's a picture of these Pharisees and how they would treat him. We'll go ahead and finish this up. Worship team, you can come on up. Verse 30, I'll pick up. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the cat, fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me. Truly, right? If you're, and there, again, on the other side of that, I talked about lost children. Which one of us doesn't want to see our kids or our grandkids grow up in the love and admonition of the Lord and not become a prodigal, not waste their life, not run off, but just grow up sweet and blessed. Isn't that a beautiful thing? And this is what this brother has. He's been in the presence of his father that whole time. What more can you ask for? You've had me 24-7. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad. For your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. Total restoration to be back together with the Father. I'd like to read Psalm 51 in closing. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 51 and follow along with me. You can even read along with me. But I think David sums up The situation that we've seen here, that which is lost is now found, and there's tremendous rejoicing. Psalm 51 says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me by your generous Spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation. And my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness. With burnt offering and whole burnt offering, then they shall offer bulls on your altar. We celebrate today. We have an agape feast. A time where we can come to the table with Jesus Christ. And all are welcome at the table. All of us, at some point in our walk with the Lord. None of us perfect. None of us sinless, but all of us saved and all of us with a Savior who will complete that work which He began in us. And as we confess our sins, He's faithful and He's just to cleanse us of our sins and all unrighteousness, to blot out our sins, to make us white as snow. And we have so much to rejoice in this morning and the fellowship we have with each other the joy of finding, the joy of returning, the joy of receiving, just the joy of rejoicing the business of heaven. Let us be about our Father's business, amen? Father God, I want to thank you for this morning, this opportunity we have once again to come to you, Father, and to be restored to that place of acceptance, that, that place of rejoicing with you. I do pray that if there's anybody here this morning who is dealing with a burden, whether it's a burden of being rejected, maybe it's a burden of rejecting others, that, Lord, you would help us to see that you receive us all. Not that we would continue in the things that keep us from You, but that we would repent and be revived and restored. I pray for those right now. And I pray, Lord Jesus, especially, that as we leave this place, You would send us out to search for that lost sheep, that lost coin, that lost soul that we would share not only in the joy of our salvation and the joy of their salvation, but the joy of your salvation in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Thanks for joining us today. To learn more about the Springs Calvary Chapel, please visit our website at www.thespringscalvarychapel.org. Join us in person at The Springs in Habern, Idaho, or here on the podcast as we worship together in spirit and in truth.